I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Leo Vardiashvili on his debut novel, Hard by a Great Forest. Leo Vardiashvili came to London with his family as a refugee from Georgia when he was 12 years old. He studied English literature at Queen Mary University in London, and his first novel, which we're going to talk about today, is Hard by a Great Forest. Leo, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me, Neil. So first of all, then, tell us how you would describe this novel. I like to think of Hard by a Great Forest as almost like a treasure island-like tale of mystery and adventure. Uh, it involves a missing father, goes missing in Georgia, which is where I'm from. Um, you know, there's corrupt police, escaped zoo animals, um, and there's a mysterious breadcrumb trail of clues that leads the main character to his dad. And this trail takes him from sketchy city neighbourhoods out into the countryside through kind of dark forests and monasteries high up in the Georgian mountains. And all these elements are kind of there to screen you from the heart of the novel, which is about family secrets and the costs of war and displacement. So hopefully when the emotional punches hit, you don't see them coming. So Saba, who is the narrator, tell us something about who he is. Um, he's a refugee. He escapes Georgia at the age of eight and comes to the UK to live in London in Tottenham. He manages to go back. Well, he has to go back to Georgia to find his missing father some 20 years later. Um, so how did they end up in England then? Tell us about what took place in Georgia that meant they had to leave. Well, in 1991, Georgia left the Soviet Union, or I should say the Soviet Union collapsed and, and Georgia became a republic, um, which quickly meant there was a, a civil war breaking out in, in Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia. So Sabah, the main character, escapes uh, from that civil war as a refugee to come to the UK. So that's the reason they've left uh, Georgia. And importantly, they could only afford to have three people uh, from the family. So it's the father and the two sons that managed to escape, and the mother stays behind in Georgia. So the novel is actually set in 2010. Tell us why then. 2010 is a couple of years after the, the war or conflict uh, in South Ossetia in, in Georgia, which was a key part of this novel. And one of the characters is affected by that conflict too. So as you can, as you can see, the, the novel is about war and, and conflict and how it affects people. So tell us something about Saba's parents then, Irakli and Eka. As you said, only one of them comes to the UK, but just tell us something about both of these characters. Well, the father 
is, I don't want to say, survival. I guess survivor guilt is the right phrase. He manages to escape, but he has to live, leave his wife behind and the mother to his kids. So he's, he spends years desperately trying to get her back, and that involves sending money back to Georgia. And he fails in doing this. And I'm not spoiling anything. This is kind of set up within the first few pages of the novel. Um, so 20 years on, he is still processing this and I guess still feeling guilty, which is what prompts him to to go back to Georgia. He's not physically looking for you know, his wife because she's long passed on. But he does go back um, and sends back a message after a few weeks saying to his sons, uh, I've left the trail. I can't erase. Do not follow me. And tell us something about Eka being left behind. Eka was a big part of the, the boys' lives. She read fairy tales and stories to them, which is what gave them, uh, the two brothers, their own language. And this language is what facilitates this breadcrumb trail um, across Tbilisi of clues that only them two could understand between them, if that makes sense. Uh, so it consists of clues from fairy tales. Uh, I'll give you an idea of what the title of the novel is it about as well. It's Hard by Great Forest is the opening line of the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale. So the brothers link to their mother is, is strong. I was going to bring up the, the fairy tale theme a bit later on, but we may as well talk about it now. So just tell us something more about how fairy tales have influenced the novel. Well, I used to get read fairy tales by my grandmother and my mum, actually. Um, and these are the kind of pre-Disney unsanitized fairy tales, Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen and that kind of stuff. Um, so I grew up on that. And there's also so many folk tales of, um, you know, Baba Yaga and all that kind of stuff um, throughout Europe and in Georgia as well. So I, I really enjoyed weaving that into the story and almost making it seem like it's real. And related to this, when Saba first arrives in Georgia, which we'll, we'll come back to his journey there in a moment, but when he first arrives, there's been uh, an incident, floods and zoo animals have all escaped and they're roaming around the city and and feature throughout the novel they're a sort of backdrop to the story i mean this felt really like sort of fairy tale as well so tell us something about where this came from was there a real incident it was it's the it's the strangest part of the novel yeah it's based in fact um in 2015 i believe it was um there was a flash flooding in tbilisi and the zoo happens to sit along the river so all the fences got damaged and literally the entire zoo emptied into the city. Um, so they, they had hippos roaming the streets. There were wolves in the shopping centre at one point. And the Bengal tiger, obviously, features in the book and in real life as well. He was escaped and they, I'm not sure how they found, managed to finally catch him. So you described the, the story in that Irakli has gone back to Georgia and disappeared and, and Sabah has to go and look for him. Uh, but there is another character, Sabah's brother, Sandro, who goes ahead as well and has already has also disappeared, failed to track down the father and is the person that's actually leaving all of the clues for Sabah to follow, not the father. Um, tell us something about Sandro and, and who he is in the sort of comparison to Sabah. Well, Sandro is the older brother, so he's the first one into the fray. So when when the when the dad goes missing, he's the first one to go and look for him. And as I mentioned, the two brothers have grown apart by this point in the novel, having been in the UK for a while. These things just naturally happen, but they still retain this language that they invented when they were first in the in the UK. So yeah, he he goes to look for his dad and finds the trail and again mysteriously he disappears too but you're right he's the he's the architect of the clues he designs the the breadcrumb trail for Sabah to follow so Sabah flies back 
on the way, he's somebody attempts to put him off going. So already there's a, a sinister feeling to his journey as he arrives back in Georgia. How does he feel when he first gets back? I imagine a lot like I felt. The beginnings of, of the character of Sabah are kind of my own history. So I left Georgia um, when I was 12, turning 13, um, and I didn't get, didn't get to go back for nearly 17 years, I think. Uh, and that first trip back was really surreal. So it, in that sense, uh, Sabah and I are similar. It's going back to a home that you don't think you'll recognize, but yet you do. Um, it's a really weird feeling that I had. So I, I started, I actually started writing Hard by a Great Forest to just to myself to make sense of that first homecoming that I had to Georgia. So how, how old were you when you first got to go back? I think I, I was in my mid-20s. Um, so from 12 to mid-20s. Yeah, long gap before I went back. And to what extent did you remember the city? Um, it took me aback how much I remembered. That, that's what the surreal part of it was. I recognized, I instantly knew the route I used to take to school from my house, which I didn't, I didn't think would be possible after such a long gap. The language, because I hadn't really been speaking Georgian that much at home, only with, with my parents in the UK. The language came back instantly, and that was a pleasant surprise as well. We were going to cover this later on as well, but we may as well carry on now. So tell us about yeah. when you first got to London then. What, was, what were the circumstances that led you to London? Um, well, it's quite a simple story, really. We left Georgia. Unlike the, the, the character suburb, we actually stayed in Georgia for the Civil War. Um, it was after the Civil War that we left uh, when it became clear that Georgia was going to be a mess for a long time. And I think the idea was that we would be somewhere in Europe, getting a decent education for a few years uh, and then returning to Georgia. But it didn't work out that way, obviously. We went to the Netherlands first, where we were turned away by the refugee centre. I, I don't know what it's called officially. Um, from there, we went to France. And again, we, we got turned away there. Uh, and from France, uh, Channel Tunnel into the UK, where our asylum case was accepted. And then we were on hold for, you know, 15 odd years. So what were your first impressions of London? Oh, I hated London. I did not like London at all. I didn't speak the language. I didn't have any friends uh, in London. Um, it was all alien. It's a bit of a culture shock. In school, I used to be quite, I, I liked school in Georgia. And in the UK, I went to a comprehensive. So they didn't have much money. They were understaffed. So they didn't have time to kind of give me one-to-one -one tuition on, on English. So I ended up sitting in the back of the class a lot of the time with a dictionary uh, and the book I was trying to, or the text that they were teaching that day, just trying to, <laughs> trying to understand what was going on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Leo Vardiashvili. We're talking about his debut novel, Hard by a Great Forest. And Leo, another character in the book, a taxi driver who picks up Saba very early on in the story and then helps him and takes him in, basically takes him under his wing, is a Noda. Um, and he lives with his wife, Katino. Um, and he's the um, Ossetian who you've alluded to earlier on. Tell us something about this character, because he's, he's brilliant. I, everyone loves Noda. He's, firstly, he's an amalgamation of all the taxi drivers I've ever come across in Tbilisi. They're all kind of experts in multiple topics, especially politics. They're usually funnier than most comedians, to be honest. Um, so taxi, <laughs> taxi rides in Tbilisi are always fun. And secondly, I wanted him and his wife to be kind of quintessential Georgians, you know, if you look at travel guides for Georgia, they always mention the hospitality, this this kind of tradition of hospitality in Georgia. No matter how badly you have it, you will always open your door to a guest. Um, and there's a saying in the novel, it's a saying in Georgia, it's a proverb, uh, a guest is a gift from God. That is the national mantra in Georgia. Tell us something about Katino, his wife as well. Absolutely. Yeah, she's she's much the same. She's in that marriage. She's the She's the brains behind the operation. I think I, d- I describe it in the novel at some point. You mentioned that they are Georgians and they're based on archetypal Georgians, but they are also refugees. So tell us something about why they're actually in Tbilisi. I didn't want to get into the politics of it in the novel. It's the Russian occupation of South Ossetia, which took place in 2008. That territory still remains as a, as a breakaway region, they call it. Um, so it's no longer Georgia. Um, that's where Nodar and his wife are from. So the conflict that took place there um, displaced a whole bunch of people. Some went into Russia and some came down south into to Georgia. So Nodar and Ketino are part of the group that came to Georgia. So they're refugees, yes. Tell us something about Tbilisi itself. What's the town like? Tbilisi, I've, I've dragged all my friends over there. They all love it. It's a, it's a really strange mixture of um, you have ancient castles and churches alongside kind of these remnants of Soviet brutalist buildings, government buildings. And right alongside that, you'll see brand new skyscrapers. So you have this really shabby falling apart street in Sololaki, and suddenly you come across a touchscreen, which is where you can pay your, your gas bill. And it's a, it's a really odd place to experience. Um, that's why I keep dragging my friends over there. 
So Solalaki, which is a, a district of the city in, in particular, tell us about that, because that features heavily in the novel. Yeah, it's, it's where I grew up and I spent a lot of time there in research for the novel as well, taking a whole bunch of pictures of what might have seen most mundane detail. But Solalaki is, is amazing. It's worth a quick Google, at least, if not a visit. Um, it's a lovely place. It's the oldest district in the city. And it's kind of, it looks like it should be falling apart, but it isn't. And it has been this way for decades and decades. There's a um, a scene in the story that takes place in a in a botanical gardens, which in the in the time of the novel is like completely overrun. I had a quick look on Google Maps at that as well. And it looks like it's much more like a, a place you'd actually want to visit now. Um, <laughs> tell us something about this place. Um, it's where I spent my childhood, and you're right, this this is a bit of artistic license with this. Um, it was not overgrown and as big as it is in the novel um, in 2008. It's like a manicured little paradise at the moment. But for the purposes of, of the book, I had to make it this overgrown, dangerous place. But it's where I grew up. I, my grandma used to take me there and, you know, read me stories. I, I distinctly remember being read Alice in Wonderland. Uh, sitting under a tree in the botanical gardens is one of those memories that stuck with me. <laughs> and there's another place in the novel that I wanted you to talk about, which plot-wise we we won't touch as to why they're actually there. Um, but Ushguli, which is a, a place in the Caucasus Mountains, um, which just sounds amazing. The drive over there and and the approach to it. Tell us something about this area. Um, it's a whole area. <clears throat> it's a whole district of uh, villages, actually in and around Ushguli, and their purpose is because Georgia has been invaded so many times historically by various empires um, that there was almost like a repeating strategy on, on how to deal with invasions, which was to retreat into the mountains. So these villages, Ushguli in particular, they're kind of last stands. You get up in the mountains, you reach as far as Ushguli, you've got your back to the mountains, that's it, that's the final stand. And this happened several times in Georgia's history. So it's quite an important part of Georgian culture, I suppose. Oshkuli still stands today. I've been there. The medieval towers. So each house is a is a tower that can be defended, which kind of makes sense given the context. And there's also in this in the story, uh, one of the characters that they pick up on the way to this place talks about an incident during the war where a lot of people like escaped over a pass, and and there was like this is obviously based on a, a historical thing as well. So what happened there? Um, that is based on a historical event. A whole group of people, again, this is a conflict similar to South Ossetia, but that took place a lot earlier than that. Again, Russia taking a chunk of Georgia. But again, it, similar to South Ossetia, a group of people decided they wanted to move to Georgia rather than stay in this new uh, breakaway region. And their way into Georgia was this horrible frozen uh, mountain pass. Uh, and dozens, if not hundreds, of people died on that one. So that's what that's what that description is based on in in the book. You talked earlier about how your own experiences as a refugee from Georgia obviously influenced the book, um, and that you basically started writing it yourself for yourself as you know as a sort of way of coming to terms with those sort of feelings. So can you tell us a bit more about about the writing process, about how the book came together? I started writing in sort of 2014, 2015, um, around a full-time job. Um, so I'm actually a tax advisor, um, which surprisingly, it's quite a lot of transferable skills between those two. Um, but I wrote it around the job and having written a big chunk of it, I realized that there, there was something to it. 
more than just me writing about myself and kind of self-therapy. And then it, it became a project that I wanted to finish and get to the end. There's a um, a stylistic feature of the novel wherein Saba hears voices in his head of ancestors um, competing with each other, telling him what to do, giving him advice or not, as the case may be. Tell us something about this aspect of the novel. Well, Saba left Georgia and he didn't get to see his close or extended family alive again because of the 20 odd years that they were apart. So these voices are voices in his head of his relatives and they're a kind of a coping mechanism, I suppose, for, for him. But before the events of the novel, he decides to stop talking to these voices, so to speak, because, you know, they, they are caricatures, as he calls them, I think, um, of his actual family. So he stops speaking to them. But as he arrives in Tbilisi and he gets dumped into this adventure, um, the voices also come back and uh, not all of them are, are benign. So I, I'll, I won't say any more than that. To finish it off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Sure. I'll give you some context. It's, it's within the first couple of pages, but it's the first time um, we're in present tense in Tbilisi. So this is Sabah's reactions to, to being in Tbilisi. Well, here I am now facing it. I'm sat in a taxi in the middle of Tbilisi, Georgia. The driver... Noda, by name, is chain-smoking like his life depends on it. Something strange is happening in the city. I feel like I've missed some crucial piece of information. Some unknown unknown. There are a lot of people in the streets for this time of night. They huddle by streetlights, smoking, talking, looking over their shoulders. The deeper we go into Tbilisi, the weirder it gets. There are empty police cars parked on corners, their lights flashing silently. Noda drives past the row of parked pickup trucks with muddy canine shapes piled in the back. Are those dogs? I ask. Nodar ignores me as he peers through the windshield. Up ahead, another silent flashing police car blocks our way. Behind it, I glimpse the swaying glimmer of water where water doesn't really belong. Nodar swerves to avoid a large apron of silt that somehow snuck onto the road. The mud mutes the rattle of the car's suspension for a second. That's when I look up, and that's when I see it. There's a rhino standing in the road directly in front of us. Nodar frowns and leans on the brakes. The rhino turns its huge head away from Nodar's headlights in an oddly human gesture. Behind the rhino is a mangled shop front. All glass and chrome. Swatch, the broken sign says. The neat little display has spilled its twinkling guts onto the pavement. Is that a rhino in the road? Uh, a clutch of people stand a safe distance away and watch the animal. A policeman steps forward and waves us to come through. That's not a rhino. That's Boris. What? That's Boris the hippopotamus. A wry smile from Nodar. No, I mean, why is it here? Nodar turns his balding head towards me. Welcome to Georgia, he says. So I've been talking to Leo Vardiashvili. We've been talking about his debut novel, Hard by a Great Forest, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Leo, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.